Jimmy's Table. Hey everybody, you're listening to the Jimmy's Table podcast, jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey, where I like to have conversations about faith, life, culture, and sometimes food. Today is episode 44, and we are going to talk about taking the path less traveled and what it means to be successful in America. I think today's show will be a fascinating one, not only because the topic itself is interesting, but because the person I am talking with today is one of the most interesting and intense people I've ever had the privilege to work with. Today I am sitting down to talk with Bill Fair. I worked with Bill almost a decade ago when I was a mailroom clerk at a law firm in uptown Charlotte. Bill is a professional bike messenger and has been zooming in and out of traffic for the past 22 years in uptown Charlotte. His career as a bike messenger is unconventional and it was his path as was his path to get there today. I don't think it's a career that many aspire to while they are in school. In fact, it's one that many would probably discourage their children from pursuing. But that's what I love about Bill. He is, in in fact, an unconventional man. But as you will hear in today's show, Bill is passionate about living life fully, and I think he has a story worth sharing, especially for those who feel in their gut that they need to be doing something other than working in a cubicle for the rest of their lives. Here's my discussion with Bill Fair. It's rather long, and it runs a little over an hour, but I think that's what you're really going to enjoy. The entire conversation is amazing. It ended up being about an hour and a half altogether. I didn't know how to trim it any more than I have. So I would just really encourage you to listen to our fascinating conversation in full. And I would also like to give a shout out while I'm at it to my former co-workers with Nova Office Strategies, which is the company Bill works for and that I used to work for as well. So here's my conversation with Bill. Take care, everybody, and enjoy. Bill, so you told me this interesting story once, um, and I'm sure you probably remember it because I remember you telling me years ago about this ride you had in an elevator in which you saw an individual uh, who saw you, and he was sitting there with his son riding the elevator with you, and he's dressed up, suit and tie, working uptown Charlotte, uh, going to whatever bank or law firm or whatever it is he was doing, uh, and he points his son to you while you're standing there with him and expresses something of a cautionary tale about you of, Cson, this is what happens if you end up working with your back and not going to school. Pretty painful sounding stuff, at least to me. I would, you know, I would have a hard time wrestling with that. Um, how did that make you feel in the moment? Um, and what was it that, did you say anything to that individual? And would you say anything now uh, to that individual? What would you want him to know uh, or his son to know uh, about uh, what what it is you do for a living and why you're happy with that and why his son should be happy with that uh, and maybe why his father should be happy with that. So the kid was wearing a, um, the father was dressed in a suit and tie, but the kid was wearing a sweater vest and a collared shirt underneath his sweater vest and he was uncomfortable, I could tell, um, just by the whole energy that was happening. I, You know what, Jimmy, I think, my initial reaction was shock, but then it transferred into like an internal reflection. I don't remember having any anger. I don't remember wanting to say anything. Hmm. It actually happened in the Bank of America Corporate Center Tower. It was pre-9-11 because after 9-11, we weren't allowed in the Corporate Center elevator towers anymore. So it was prior to that and it was in the winter. So it was in my first couple of years of doing this. And I guess, I mean, I guess at that point I realized... I guess after all these years, maybe I've realized that one thing people should not do to each other is assume 
where the other person's at just by an appearance. You know, it, it was like, um, again, I don't remember being angry. I just remember being shocked right. and taking it as like almost a metaphor for when I walked out of the elevator, I almost felt like I had had that moment, you know, 20 or 22 years earlier with my own dad. Um, where uh, he was, he was into management and successful on that track, if you will. And, and I just, I, I sort of remember that exudes from people. So I guess it was shocking, but not surprising, shocking because it happened to me, but not surprising because right. it's a conditioning of culture right. to make assumptions about people. And I, I truly guess if, if I had something to say to him right now, it would be like, Hey, you know, um, I would never want to have your job. I left a job. <laughs> I'd left a job like yours for this whole purpose to right. be in the moment and to be present. And I guess combine working my back with my brain. And I'd also want him to know that I spent four years in a, in a private Catholic high school, um, with a, with a very decent, you know, grade point average getting out of there. Um, I also spent four years in the military in the Marine Corps after that. And after that, when I went into the working world, I went to college for three years at Gaston College over in Gaston County. And I actually did not finish my degree. But I mean, hey, I have an education, Jeff. Right. You know, and you can't just assume that about people. I, I think we should stop trying to understand, thinking we can just like look at somebody and understand what's going on in their mind. Do you think he would be shocked to hear that you've had that sort of background and that you actually had maybe a job like his, whatever his job was, and that you turned your back on it? Yeah, no, I don't think he was thinking that. I think he was trying to... Sh trying to, you know, guide his son into right. being himself and having his son change maybe his son's dreams right. to his own dreams, right. you know, to, con you know, to, cons in if instead of his son, like maybe one day being whatever the son wanted to be, uh, about the son, I feel like the father was more or less trying to shock his son into becoming exactly like the father and mm. for the father's Maybe the father's definition of success, and I think this happens throughout the American culture, you know, pretty often because obviously this guy wasn't, you know, super, uh, uh, how do I say, uh, not, he wasn't super, um, getting back to the point, I think the dad wasn't, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking for the word where he isn't unique to society. I don't think the yeah. father's attitude towards me in the elevator that day is unique to society. Okay. I just happened to crisscross with an example of right. it. And I think that's one of the things is that as parents, sometimes parents try to define their, de they try to assume that their definition of success is the one for their children. Right. When a child might have a completely different understanding of what success is. Okay, that's good. How would you define success? How do you think people should define success? Well, that was the question. And should we try to be successful? Right, exactly. So that was so funny. A couple of years ago when the DNC came in 2012, um, I was I think you might have even seen the video that Charlotte Video Project asked me to be part of mm -hmm. for that was going to be rolling in a room with 99 other short videos while Democrats were doing their thing at the DNC right. or whatever. And I was in this small side think tank at the lab one afternoon and it was like two weeks away and somebody said, okay, you know, there's a chance that we're going to be able to propose a question to Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. What should that question be? And everybody like looked at each other and were like thinking, oh my God, if you had one question, you could ask <laughs> the most powerful man in the room and you right. had two minutes to ask that question and then he has a five minute rebuttal, right. what would that question be, right? right? So we decided to not answer then. We all went home and then the next day we go back and everybody had their thing. And one of the things that I was pretty much in agreement of, we should ask him to redefine the American 
the success for Americans. Okay. Like, redefine it. We didn't know what it is now, like, because it seemed, like, so bad. Like, I, I had a big problem with the Iraqi war um, as a Persian Gulf veteran. I felt we were all ripped off on that, especially the people that have been killed because of our, you know, our incursion into Babylon. And I remember, like, thinking, if that's what success is, then I don't want any part of that. Like, if this is... Thing. So why not redefine that and come up with something, I don't want to say utopian, but right. a little bit more conscious of what's going on around us, right. you know, a little bit more conscious of people and, and what we're spending the money on and, and all that. So, I mean, I guess my definition of success is, um, for me, it's trying to feed, you know, my creative body, uh, my physical body, my emotional body, my spiritual body or whatever with positive balance and creating an existence where I'm, I know I'm where I want to be. I don't, I love my job. Yeah. Like my, my career, I love my family. Right. I love my family. I love the place that we live in, the, our home that we've created. I love interacting with old friends clear right. out of the blue. Right. So I think these are the, the successful thing to me is the more tangible, uh, emotional transfers and mm. intercommunicational transfers you can have with people. So it's not just the white picket fence in the suburbs and the Mercedes the great, the and the great girl. job, right, the perfect wife, the perfect vacation, right. the next thing that you're looking for into the future that you think is going to bring you. Yeah, the American definition of success is is um, it's not necessarily mine. That's that's right. for sure. Your sounds more relational than that. America's definition of success would be placed on the material and occupational things that we enjoy in life, the the self fulfillment. Of, of your job and having a job that everybody looks up to and respects and thinks the world of, but then not necessarily even saying anything about the relationships that we forge along the way. Right. Um, and what are the consequences of those right. material things? Like, right. what are the consequences of, you know, those material things on a collective? When we were talking about this earlier, right. when I walked in and I was updating you on, like, having to experience my parents' death, right. how it all came down to everything winds up in the dumpster. Right. You know, so what's the point? Like the the point is that at that point you're taking up landfill space. Right. You have more detritus, more right. thermodynamic entropy releasing into the atmosphere. Like, right. and it's crazy to me. And I I think it's more about it's it's more about like for me it's more about like the like seeing something, realizing it's beautiful, and trying to like get people to acknowledge that, right. but doing it softly or artistically so it's not like I'm trying to. Right. be overbearing it reminds me of when i work at the the law firm uh uptown and especially around the holidays um like thanksgiving and christmas and stuff you know when most people want to spend times uh with their families and things like that that there would actually be lawyers like on thanksgiving eve christmas eve christmas day coming into the office and i'm not going to sit here and say I, I don't know the full story of why they were in the office but i definitely got the impression from some of them that they were hiding from their families Yet here they are, some of them leading partners at some of the largest, most powerful law firms, uh, if not in Charlotte, if they're not in the country, if they're not in the world. Um, and they, they have the, the, uh, the degrees, they have you know, all the profiles, they have all the bar association reviews, and they're admired by their peers, but there's just something about them they can't get along with their families, uh, and it's just a tragedy to them. The, the, like, life is so painful at home, and it's so fulfilling at the office that they would rather be at the office uh, sweating away. And maybe they're doing a great job. I, I'm sure they're doing a great job with what they're doing. And they probably get some sort of a joy and satisfaction. out. I, I can't imagine that they would be doing as well as they did if they didn't get something out of it personally. But 
you know, at what sacrifice. And maybe they like being able to say they're successful and being able to point to the resume. But I don't know. Maybe success isn't defined by the resume. Maybe it's defined by, like you were hinting at, uh, with family and relationships and uh, real meaning. Um, so I'm assuming that growing up, uh, if you've ever had a career day, um, that you never thought as a kid, staying up, I want to be a bike messenger for a living. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? This is fascinating. Um, because when I read this bullet point, when you sent me this the other week before we were preparing for this, I was like, that's a really good question. Um, you know what? I really, that was a, that was one of, that was a pivotal point in my life, actually, the high school years, like, because, um, it was, it's confusing, right? Like it's right. confusing. Like people want you to be something like the guy in the elevator wanted his son not to not go to college so he could have a great job. Right. You know, and parents always say, and I felt the same cultural pressures from my parents about sure. what you wanted to be, what college you're going to go to. Right. And all I can think was like, if you really, if I really were to answer that question, I don't know that I wanted to, I don't remember truly wanting to be anything. Hmm. I remember being forced to try to be something. Interesting. Like, was I going to be an engineer? Was I going to be a lawyer? Was I going to be... What was I going to be? Right. But, but I don't remember having an innate sense of I wanted to be anything. Hmm. I do remember at that pivotal time transferring between my par parents taking care of you and getting out when you're 18. When, the, when I basically <clears throat> did not get into my first choice college, I had a decision to make. I, was, I remember what I truly wanted was to... To travel, huh. I wanted to. I wanted to get out of my hometown in Brooklyn, Connecticut. I wanted to go see France. I wanted to go see Israel. I wanted to go to the African continent. I wanted to get to Asia one day. Like I had, I do remember having not wanting to be anything as much as I wanted to be experiencing the globe. Yeah. So that wasn't like paying the bills. So when you explain that to your parents at 18, right. they're like, well, I mean, if you're not going to take our ride to your second choice college right. for four, the next four years, then you're out, you know, three months after your high school graduation right. to figure it out. Right. And, and that was really the impetus for me joining the Marine Corps. I was about to ask. Because like, the guy said, you can go anywhere you want. Like, we're going to send you around the world. Uh, the recruiter will send you to places you never even knew existed. Yeah, like. with, with a really high score ASVAB, he tells me I can be anything I want. And I All say... Right. This is funny, Jimmy. That's a great question because right. if I reflect back in the now, as this as we're talking this out, I was a senior in high school. I wasn't even 18 years old. I was 17. It was Christmas break. I graduated high school in May of 87, so this is December of 86. I'm walking around in New London, Connecticut. I'm confused because I didn't get into my first choice college. My dad's telling me I have to leave the house in three months after May if I don't go to my second choice college. And I see the only recruiter open in the bottom of the train station in London was the Marine Corps. The door was open. I walked in, Staff Sergeant Dwart, Staff Sergeant Dwart. My name's Bill Fair. Uh, what's it like in the Marine Corps? Do you travel? He's like, oh, yeah, we do that. So he basically allowed me to take the ASVAB test. And then when they had to read the score to my parents, I, they had to know. It was a weird thing. Anyway, he looks at me and tells me I can be anything I want <laughs> in the Marine Corps. And I say, after the ASVAB test, and I say to him, I said, well, all I really care about is travel. And he says, oh, then you want to be a machine gunner. Because, <laughs> because you're going to carry this big machine gun on other continents, man. You're right. going to be on a boat for six months, eight months at a time, pulling into exotic ports. Right. It's going to be great. Sign right. here. And so I did. That's a very fascinating question. Yeah. Career, the career day question that you posed yeah. is fascinating because I think it goes to a convergence point in that recruiting office where I had a choice to make. Right. I, 
My dad and mother basically gave me a choice. Either take the four-year college ride to your second choice. Right. Or get out of the house three months after <laughs> high school graduation. Right. You're on your own. Figure right. it out. Right. And, uh, and not wanting to be... I couldn't even tell the recruiter what I wanted to be, let alone... I just wanted to experience... That was what I really wanted to do. I didn't want to be. I wanted. I didn't want to be anything. I just wanted to be. You just wanted to okay, experience. That makes sense. Yeah. So, do you feel like your recruiter uh, fulfilled his promise to you to? Because uh, my brother, when he was uh, in the, uh, he was eighty second airborne. Yeah, I remember. Uh, Bragg and uh, uh, my uncle recruited him, uh, and uh, and uh, and while he was in basic training. Uh, the, the the drill sergeant said, whatever your recruiter said to you, they lied. And he's like, well, my uncle was my recruiter, Sarge. And he's like, that's one effed up family you got there, Humphrey. And, uh, you know. And your so, dad's brother? Uh, my mom's. Mom's brother. Uh, who they specifically told right. to stay away from my brother. Um, because he was starting to, my brother was very lost, not entirely sure what he wanted to do with his life. And, you know, one thing led to another. I think that's a natural thing to have. Right. Feel. Oh yeah. I I remember when I was in like in high school, I didn't really have any sense of what I wanted to be, and you know, it was it was kind of very ambivalent to me, and and you know, many those things changed over time and stuff. I had once I wanted to feel like I wanted to go into like professional ministry and do be a pastor and stuff like that, be a missionary, plant churches or whatever. Um, but then I went through Bible college and seminary and decided, well, I don't think that's actually what. I'm supposed to be here to do now. What do I do? Well, I do one thing leads to another, and I end up at the law firm. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that leads to where I work now. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing. Right. The, the experience that you open yourself up to where you need to be gets right. you to the next place to exactly where you're supposed to be. Right. And, and, that, yeah. and it's like, I, I never grew up, and nobody ever, like, I didn't say, I didn't put a name tag on my career day thing and say, I want to be J.P. Morgan when I grow up. No, but no kid grows up wanting to be a banker. Uh, and, and so, but it was interesting because I, I got into that. And it's like, it's amazing because I really actually enjoy my job now. And I, I enjoy the analytic stuff of it. And, you know, knowing that in some sense, I really help people accomplish whatever it is their financial goals are and stuff. And having a house and, and whatnot. Like, you know, that, that means something to me. I know how much a home means to me. And I'm like, man, I get to do that every day. That's cool. Um, and, and so, I, but I would have never known 20, 30 years ago when I'm, you know, 16 trying to formulate my theory of the world and figure out what I want to do with my life. That's what I want to do. But I felt to it anyway. And it all happened just by taking a step um, and seeing where that step led. Uh, and it was like kind of just aimless and wandering, but like it just it happened. Uh, so that's interesting. Cool. Um, so let's see. So how did you go from uh, military veteran to corporate manager? Because you spent some time, at, and you don't have to say the name of the company if you don't want to, but Sears and Robot. <laughs> they still exist? SLS. No. <laughs> I was an arm of Sears and Robot, Sears Logistical Services. Okay. So tell me about your uh, experience at Sears and uh, corporate manager and what, you know, how did you like that? How long did you do that? And then how did you get to where you All right. Were? This is going to get good, Jimmy. This is going to get real good. Because uh, so this was a Yang I was I've actually finally lived in the South longer than I lived in the North. Nice. So, yeah. So I. Welcome. No. <laughs> yeah, really. So, um, so four years. So I enlisted and was extended for 11 months. I think my total time served was just over four years. After I had initially signed up for an eleven or a three-year enlistment, and then got extended because of the first Persian Gulf, and then so when I get out, um, okay. So before, here's what the deal was: I was supposed to get out in September of 1990. I had just gotten back in July from my second and what I thought was my final deployment. It was a six-month deployment to the Mediterranean on the USS Ponce, 
with 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. I had just gotten home. I was short-timer. I had met a pretty girl the fall before. Her name is St. Lissa. I'm married to her. We have a child who's in college now. Nice. Yeah, so I met her like the, the, the fall before my last deployment. And then when I'm supposed to be getting out in September of 90, not knowing Saddam invaded Kuwait in August of 90, August 1st, I was in the barracks one afternoon chilling short timer and I heard my name come over the thing and they said for me to go to the company office and see Gunny Rob I go to Gunny Rob I'm thinking they're gonna let me out early and he extends me for for the Persian Gulf he's like son you're going to the Persian Gulf with two four in a couple months you're not getting out you're leaving in Christmas Eve we're leaving on Christmas Eve oh great okay so at that minute I had had what I had had a job starting in Massachusetts my father arranged for me to work for a small fledgling company called ESPN, and I was going to have, in 1990... And the I was, ESPN? The ESPN no. was a fledgling company right. in uh-huh. 1990 in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh-huh. He was in telecommunications and new people. Right. He had a contract with this fledgling right. ESPN. Hey, my son's going to be out of the Marine Corps in a couple months. Can you give him a job? Yeah, we'd love right. to give him a job. So I had a job lined up up there. Lisa and I were going to move up there. Nice. But then I wound up going to the Persian Gulf and didn't get back until the July of 91. So the job was gone. All right. So feeling like I had could do anything I wanted. I remember having like almost $15,000 in cash nice. because I didn't cash any of my checks from my deployment. <laughs> wow. They just collected wow. at the U.S. Navy Federal Credit Union. Back when we there was no electronic deposit at that time, I don't remember. Mm. And so I had a dummy knot, what I call a dummy knot. I had a big wad of cash. I get out in the end of July, and Lissa and I were in a hotel room in Camp Lejeune, right outside in Jacksonville. We had the map of North Carolina. We put a pencil on Charlotte, and we dropped it, and the tip of the pencil pointed to Gastonia. Uh-huh. I was like, what's Gastonia? <laughs> and she was like, well, it's on the other side of Charlotte. So we basically drove there that day, put a drop down on, the, uh, on an apartment, for a year, whatever. And then I took six months off. And then that, after six months of Lisa asking me, when was I going to go to work again? Um, I went to the, the, the Gaston County um, unemployment office where they had a liaison that was a military person. So I gave him all my information and he's like, okay, we'll call you with some jobs. And I got a job in Bessemer city, North Carolina for, um, Western Auto Supply Company, which was owned by Sears out of Kansas City, Missouri at that time. I went to work in the tire warehouse. 1.3 million square feet, anywhere between 10 and 13 million tires in there. Wow. Yeah, stacked on pallets in racks, six, six pallets <laughs> high, coming in and going out to all Western Autos and Western Autos and Sears Auto Centers, wow. tire centers in the southeast. We used to get tires at Sears, folks. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. All right, so I got the job, and my, yeah. for the first couple of weeks, I was slinging tires. First couple of months, six months, I'm slinging tires on second shift. I'm sweating. I'm ba-da-ding. We had just got, and now the warehouse has other commodities. It has batteries, it has spray paint, it has every widget you could imagine. It's this big place. Like, it's a really big place. I think the whole building was like almost 3 million square feet, whatever. Huge. And I'm like six months into that gym making probably eight bucks an hour or Mm -hmm. something like that. It's the end of 1991, and we had just gotten a new DC manager. His name was Tom Rampey, and I'm in the trailer singing like Marine Cadence, like, oh, Radaleo, Betty Radaleo. And I'm, I'm doing my work, little birdie with a yellow bill. 
And I didn't know this, but he had heard me. The DC manager, the man, uh. had heard and wanted to know who that was. <laughs> and comes into the trailer, and he was in the Marine Corps during Vietnam. Right. So we immediately hit a bond. Right. And then he promoted me like two weeks later wow. to like uh, a lead, a wow. lead position. And after six months of that, I was pulled into management. Wow. And by 1998, uh, I so I had worked at the DC in Bessemer City until 1995. The DC manager that was the Marine Tom Rampy had left. Another new awesome fellow. He was a good mentor. He was a really good guy, Dwayne Elledge. I went to him in 95 and said, keep an eye out for, if you'd be willing to let me go, I'd like to move physically out of North Carolina. Yeah. And, his, and a couple months later, we had a place in Pennsylvania. I was yeah. working on a project there. So back up north. <laughs> back up north to Hummelstown, Pennsylvania. I used to commute my bike through the Hershey Forest every morning oh, wow. on a pathway, like a greenway. Okay. It was like a short commute. It was only about five miles, but like three miles of it was cutting through the Hershey Forest. Wow. Like a, it was beautiful, huh. deer, things like that. Like it was nice riding my bike to work and then managing this business. And that was 95 to 98. And so by 1998, I was 28 years old. I was making $65,000 a year. And when I moved to Pennsylvania, they gave me an envelope with $20,000 worth of stock certificates wow. in the company that I was working for <laughs> as my first portfolio for free. Wow. So I was... On some definition of success, right? Uh, somebody's somebody's right. definition of success right. at that minute, I actually had, right? Like, and but that wasn't. It was, yeah. So that's what happened. So I, I went to work for the man. Um, I was really good at it. Um, probably considered a hard ass a bit, but I did not lie to people, and I and I did not cover up truths, uh, things like that. Yeah. And like I said, by '98, I'm in the driver's seat. Listen, I had. Two cars, a cute little house that was built in 1940. It was like beautiful with a very steep roof and slate, sh slate shingles. We had nine acres of property at that spot. Yeah. We, we could sit on our back a step and see the Allegheny Mountain Range at the, nice. the yeah, the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The Wilkes-Barre River came right through there, the capital. I used to go up there for work zone with my current employer, yeah. So you know what, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. It's yeah. beautiful. And we had a, one year we had like 10 feet of snow against the back of the house because yeah. the that used to rip up from the fields down below. And yeah, that's what I did. I, uh, I worked, I, I got there via hard work and, um, going to the, to the military, uh, liaison at the Gaston County, North Carolina <laughs> unemployment office and telling them my wife says I need a job. Now. Wow. Yeah. And then, so that's what I did. Very, very unusual path there. So, so what made you decide, okay, this, uh, corporate life is success that, you know, maybe a lot of people would, Strive for an envy. Like, what made you decide I can't do this anymore? This is going to be a really good part. So you're smart, man. You're smart because you ask the questions, and not a lot of people do that. So just let me give you a little kudos. You. you ask the questions. The flow is awesome. This is great. All right. So I'm answering the question. I'm trying to answer this question where Jimmy's asking me what what caused me to realize it wasn't for me. While I was in it, making the sixty five thousand a year back then, and having all the the perks of management and, you know, an office and, you know, the command and control of, you know, 30 something employees and another three or $5 million worth of inventory. Um, while I was in it, I knew it was hard work. Um, uh, and I knew it was difficult work and I knew that it was long work. And by the time 1998 happens, and I had been in it at that point from the end of 91 to 98, and I went from like $8 an hour guy to that in like right. quick, right. fast track, right. just because I was singing a Marine Corps chant inside of an <laughs> elevator or inside of the uh, back of the trailer truck, slinging tires. 
what happened was, was it was, it was January of 98 and an old Marine buddy of mine calls me. I was in Pennsylvania back with the landline days and in Timmy McDonald, uh, who had, I had traveled with quite extensively. He grew up born and raised in Chicago on Argyle Avenue, Argyle street. Um, his mom, um, his mom passed away while we were in, that was a weird thing, but she had given him her home. And it was a three-story above ground, one story below that he converted and was making money off of. And Timmy called me one day from Chicago and said, hey, buddy. He's like, um, me and my buddy Dave and a bunch of other people, there's like four or five of us. We're going up to Sand Lake, Wisconsin in February for 10 days to go ice fishing. Why don't you come along? I was like, well, I don't ice fish. He's like, bring, I see what you're doing. You bring all your cold weather gear. Bring your cross-country skis, your mountain bike with fat tires. Bring all your equipment, your gloves. We'll go, you have winter experience. Uh, I don't know if he'll let me off. And at that point, I hadn't had a, I had had taken a couple days off with the three years up in Pennsylvania. Hmm. I had taken a day or two here and there, but I really hadn't had like an extended time away from work. So I took two weeks off. I took 14 days off in February of 98. Lissa, my wife, went back down to Charlotte to spend time with her family who were in the Charlotte area at that time, Huntersville. And um, I went out west uh, in the Jeep. Um, spent a night in Chicago and then we drove up six hours north of Madison the next day. It was nice. an incredible journey. And, you know, I hadn't even thought about quitting on the drive out there. <laughs> and it wasn't even a thought, like, um, that, that it wasn't for me to, to get to the answer of the question. So when we got to this beautiful place, I think there was like 27 year round residents. It might be 60 something now, mm-hmm. but in this teeny town up in the boundary water, more or less, um, the ice was three and a half feet thick. I drove my Jeep wow. on the ice. Cool. Yeah. I went skiing every day right out of the cabin. I would ride my bike. I would get, it was, you know, at one point it was like 16 below. It was, it was great. We were okay. You know, we were having a couple beers every night. We had food. We were doing fine. And it was, those guys were staying like four days longer than I could. And I had to start my journey back on this particular next morning. So the night before I had watched these guys play this game where like one of them would edge to the door and try to slip his boots and his jacket on and get out of the door before anybody else could and then run out to the lake and go out on the, they ran a tip line that they kept out all the time. Basically they changed it like every 12 or 16 hours or something, but you know, so whatever. So the next thing I know I did that and it was the first night that I did that and I got out the door, I put on my skis and I skied right out. It's probably around 11 or midnight at night. I ski right out onto the ice. I remember keep looking over my shoulder to see the light on the porch because I knew if they turned that off, I was not going to know where to go. Um, but my eyes would have adjusted, I guess. So I ski out this tip line and I'm probably 150, 200 meters off the shore. And like I turn around, Jimmy, and I look up and I'm like, oh, and it was the Milky Way. Huh? It was it was it was the accelerated expansion of 14.5 billion years. And it was right there. And it reminded me of uh, military a few years earlier in Sardinia, in Israel, this, going across the Atlantic on a Navy ship at night and like looking up and being like, oh my gosh, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is insane. This is the expansion of a universe that's been going on at an accelerated rate for 14 and a half billion years. Holy cow. Right. And I just remember sitting down, popping my skis off and I'm like watching this experience and all of a sudden the thing start, the machine, the the equipment on the ice started making like a snapping noise or something. And I look down and line is coming off this spool and I, I grab it and I like wrap it around my mitted hand and all of a sudden I feel the fish. 
and it's dark and like I'm in the Milky Way and I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> and like I pull that thing out hand over hand. And when I got it out of the hole and it fell like right over here, it was as long as my arm. It was oh, like yeah. a, it was like a northern pike. Huh. You know? And I looked at it and then I sat back down and I had a moment with it and it I watched it expire. And I took it back to the cabin and I walked right past everybody and I went to the phone and I called Lissa and I said, I have to quit this job. I have to quit this job. Please support me. I have to quit this job. I hate this job. This job sucks. I'm giving it up for them. It's the, 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 the culture of the, the backstabbing thing to get up. It's just not me. It doesn't feel true. And before I could even like stop crying, she's screaming at me. It's okay. We can move back to Charlotte. And so I made the decision on three feet of ice while I was enveloped by our galaxy and wow. it was a cosmic moment in my life it was that moment where I had to go back and I went back and I went back I left the next morning I thought about the whole way home and I Lissa basically Lissa went home almost within three weeks of me getting back to arrange for us to have a place here and then I closed the house up in Pennsylvania and left two months earlier or two months later wow yeah so did you know what you were coming to when you were moving? No clue. No clue. No clue. So how did you fall into bike? I mean, I was yeah, yeah. You, so you were riding bikes and stuff already. Yeah, but, yeah, of yeah, course. So. I know since I was three years right, old, right. my dad says, you know, and it was part of my culture. Even when I had the corporate job, right. I was mountain biking every, right. I would drive to places to get my mountain bike into West Virginia and get lost for six or eight hours or whatever. Right. So, and road riding was a little bit part of my culture then. Definitely bike commuting. I, I was even biking commuting in Gastonia. Huh? So what happened was, was, so I came back. Uh, I sold the house in May of 98. I came back. And what was fascinating with the corporate thing is I feel like when I came back and resigned and I told any, the, the GM tried to talk me into not, I didn't even tell my, I didn't tell anybody what I was doing no. except for Lissa, my wife. She was the only one I really think besides myself that I trusted with the information right. family wise. And so when I told the GM, he's trying to talk me out of it. And the next thing I know, I say, no, no, Dan, this is it. If you need me to work 60 days, I'll work 60 days. I'll work 45. I'll work 90. Doesn't, I'm out. Right. It's over. Right. It's over, man. Right. So he basically asked me to work for 45 days, which I did. It was July. It was a couple months later, June, July, July of 98. I'm, so I came up with this idea for a dog walking service. And I was going to call it Dr. Doolittle's. And I made a bunch of pamphlets and I jumped on my, I threw them in the backpack and I jumped on my bike and I, in 1998, and I went unknowingly going into parking garages and sticking my flyers in parking garages on people's windshield wiper blades, right. which I would never do in this day and right, age. Right. But I did do that then. And I was riding around uptown for like the second or third day when I saw this kid go by with a yellow shirt on and a shiny helmet and he was on a bike and he was racing and it was obvious he had a messenger bag. And I'm like... What? And so I chase him down and I, and his, I, his name will come, I can't, his name will come to me in a second, but I, I, Max, I chase this guy down and I say, what are you doing? He's like, I'm a bike messenger. I'm like, no way. Where do I apply to be that? He's like, oh, you go over there. And so I go over there and I applied uh, with this company and I stumbled across it. I, I accidentally stumbled across uh, working for a company called Priority One, Priority One, which is defunct now. Basically, what I had to do is I basically, at that point, I left Priority One and I started my own business that I was in a partnership with, with a local bike shop. We were in partnership for me to run Ultimate Courier, which I owned the business for the following three years after that. Uh. So I stumbled across it while I was marketing my dog walking service. <laughs> and I had two or three clients at dog walking in Myers Park, but 
when the bike career thing started, I realized, oh my God, this could be, I could wind up having a 35 or 40 year career doing this wow. because it's cool. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, what happened when you came home and said, honey, I want to ride my bike for a living. How did that, what was that conversation like? Did she have any concept of such a thing and what, what were her concerns? No, I mean, I don't think... Was she supportive of not that? Incredible. Like, everything I've ever told this woman, every crazy thing I've ever had to tell her, she has never tried to stop me from being who I am. Nice. Um, yeah, I can honestly say that. She's never... She's been very supportive. So when I came home, oh, okay. Like, I mean, <laughs> like, okay, if that's what you're going to do. Like, there was, for the ride. I mean, we went from, you know, I went from making the, the, the that amount of money back then. I think my first year doing a... Being a bike courier in 10 months, I think I made $16,000. It was nothing. Yeah. You know, everything has come back. A lot of hard work. There's nothing right. like, I mean, it was a, that was then. This now is completely different. But I just do remember it was like a sacrifice. You know what I mean? Right. Like it was a huge sacrifice when I was working for uh, the other one. But no, Lisa, Lisa was never um, unsupportive of my, uh, my crazy ventures. I wind up telling her some crazy things, really. I always have um, about what I'd like to do and what I can do and that kind of thing. Um, I, I think I got some resistance from parents and some confusion. Like, why would he have given up? Right. Every day when I jump on my bicycle, I get this minute, a couple seconds where I'm like, this is exactly what it was like 40 years ago when I was 10 years old. (laughs) I feel exactly the machine is simple. One speed, one gear. It's a very rigid bike. The way that it feels rolling over asphalt, the smells of like, you know, laundry and bacon going through the neighborhood, just like right. a beam of light hits. All of a sudden I have a flashback of being a, a boy, mm. you know, 40 years ago right. where the bicycle was always part of a kid. You're being a kid. It feels like being a kid, you know, on that part of it, the ride right. part. Interesting. Did you, uh, do you ever, did you ever like early on, like when you were first getting into it, I mean, I mean I've, I've seen you work. I mean, I've seen you with, uh, I remember you come into the, the firm once and you had frost on your beard um, because it was snowing outside and icicles were building up. I was like, oh my gosh, like, do you ever sit there and be like, man, what am I doing? Um, does it ever, do you ever feel like, man, did I make a mistake at some point? Were they right? Were, you know, were my yeah. parents right? I've had those minutes. Yeah. I've had those minutes, you know, I've had those minutes, a low point. Do you still point. have those feelings today? At all? No, I think, um, I'm trying to think when the last time I would have thought, no, I actually, that hasn't been in a couple years. Okay. That doesn't been no. Everything feels like it's right where it's supposed to be. But yeah, I've I've had those low minutes where, you know, you leave the you've got everything is counting on clean communication and uh, the one person screwing up can really oh, yeah. like like I've had to go out of my way three or four miles in a quick fashion because somebody made a communication right. mistake and it's like ah right like you want them you know you want to kick them or right. something or but. <laughs> But, um, and I, and I've, and it's piled on and, and the weather, weather, not so much, maybe a little bit more like situational work stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's not so much about the physicality of it. That yeah. No. About, like you never like, man, I'm freezing today or man, it's a hundred degrees outside and the humidity is choking me. And like, and what am I doing out here? You're, you're totally cool with that, but it's more so just the business aspect. Yeah. Of the it. business okay. aspect of it, the mechanics of it. There's been a couple low points I can remember freaking out one year um i might have even ran into rira and like almost given up <laughs> like and went to the bar and like ordered a guinness and just sat there and it's stared like well jobs are, give up you know? yeah <laughs> yeah and get the uh, the, the stew right. but what's interesting is that the physical part of it that you're talking about like the weather stuff right 
And that's another thing that was like part of my discovery. Um, you know, I grew up in the 70s and early 80s in northeastern Connecticut. We actually had wonderful seasons. Like we had a winter, we had a spring, we had a summer and a fall. And I mean, you know, back then, we all know this, you were on the cusp of that, you were there, right. we played outside, right? right. And so uh, all seasons, you know, and I think one of the interesting things about dealing with stuff like weather in our profession as bicycle messengers, where we have to be on professional point all the time, right. business hours, 8.30 to 5, Monday through Friday, all year round, is how adaptable a lot of times people have perspectives from the inside saying, I don't know how they're doing that. It's so cold out there. And, oh, I don't know how he's doing it. It's so hot out there. Or it's raining or it's snowing or it's icing or whatever it is. But what's fascinating, with a small amount of gear and merino wool and polypropylene base layers, you'd be surprised at how well the body adapts to being outside. All right. and, it, and, it, and it becomes like this um, almost like connection to the atmospheric condition, this like like the other day when it the the morning Tuesday it was or Monday that it was like 22 degrees or 24 degrees for two mornings in a row on that third day when it was like 38 I was like oh my gosh it's balmy you know like it's like I think I think our human I think we don't give ourselves I I was put into this position where my professional career choice has shown me how adaptable to atmospheric conditions humans are actually Um, so uh, at what point in your bike messenger career did you like like did like really stick back man i'm gonna do this long term and man this is a joy this is a delight to me and i'm thrilled to be out here you know Mm -hmm. pounding the pavement with my bike and running around like a madman or all around town like did did you ever have a like aha sort of moment Uh, no well i mean to be honest i think the aha moment was the the trip to wisconsin Mm -hmm. and sitting on the lake and watching the pike die while I'm enveloped by our closest galaxy or the closest galaxy to us, the Milky Way is like, you know, it's holding me on that ice. I think that was the aha moment, which got me to be there to, you know, to do the dog walking marketing and then to run into Max and the the whole transfer with, you know, becoming a bike messenger. Um, I don't know. I mean, I maybe over the last couple, maybe since my daughter's gone to college, if, if I really think about that, did I realize that, that this is it? Like, because I never, I knew this, I never had any, um, there was never any, any friction in my mind about doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that answers yeah, the yeah, question. Yeah. So, or, um, like, cause you've been doing this like 19 years now, right? No, 22 come July. Oh, 22. Okay. Come July, it'll be 22. Holy July God. 3rd will be 22 year anniversary doing this. Did, did, did and you I'll be 51. Did you, and you thought back then, man, I could be doing this for the rest of my life? Yeah, I knew pretty early on. Wow. Yeah. So, like, but yeah, some, I felt I felt like this will actually cause me to live longer or something. It, it probably will because I mean I've seen your calves. They're, the, and they're, stuff s- like. they're still the same. <laughs> like I, I, I still have to show my wife. Like, uh, like his calves. Somebody are like, told what? me. Somebody told me the other day they're in two zip codes. They're so big they're in two zip codes. <laughs> like I was like his calves are like wiffle bats. Like you know. Uh, like you should see Bill's legs, and it, uh, you should have seen my dad's. He was six foot three. I'm five foot six. Uh-huh. I I got his genetic calves, so imagine yeah, them on a six three frame, right? Like pizza plates. So, but I mean, with the job being so physically demanding mm-hmm. and stuff, I mean, professional athletes they they train all their entire lives to be professional athletes, and then they you know hit thirty five and they can't do it anymore because I mean, like like or look at Luke Heakley, only twenty eight years old, and he's stepping out of retirement because mm-hmm. he just can't do it anymore. He's been hit too many hard times the physicality yeah, of, yeah. of your job. I mean, in, in many ways, you're kind of a professional athlete. You ride your bike yep. 
and counting on my you, feet. And you have to. And I've seen you. You're out there flying. Like yep. you are pedaling, and you have a long journey. Your your day starts early. You start like uh, last I talked to you. You're. Um, I remember you telling me about how you uh, pedal for certain miles. You get the bus, mm-hmm. and then you get downtown. Yep. You, you ride all day uh, till about for work wise till about in. I've got I've 22 years in. I deserve this. I I I, I say I deserve. My schedule is this. I physically. It used to be from 7.45 to 5, getting home at 5.36 every day. About four or five years ago, with the amount of volume and having to get new couriers on, because yeah. I have a team, that, a team of teams, I like to call them, yeah. my team of teams, nice. um, I was able to back my schedule up a little bit. I finish in between 1 and 2 physically, and usually get home by 3, 4 at the latest okay. these days. How many miles do you probably put on your bike? Uh, right now, averages. Daily average is probably in between 20, 25, but just like one day the other week, I had like a 38-mile day. Wow. My phone tracks what I do okay. in the fit mode and okay. the bicycle thing. So I know I, I can, if I want to look at my stuff, I, I used to have a computer on my bike for like the first five years. Okay. You just can't do that because you see the data all the time. So <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm saying like, honestly, it's probably in between 20 and 25 miles daily average on my bike. And usually, and if I get a, Double commute, which sometimes still happens, it might be thirty to forty on a on a busy day, uh-huh. a wicked busy day. Uh-huh. But average is probably twenty three to twenty five. Right, and and you're um you you're fifty one. Yeah, I'll be fifty one this coming May. Okay, yeah, so you're fifty one. So, yep. is there a point? Do you think in your heart and your mind that you feel like you know there's going to be a stopping point for you physically, like there is Luke Keekley, yeah, to where you know you just can't do it. From do you feel like you're anywhere close to that right now? No, that? not even how long, close. How long do you think you can keep going? Just well, in I, case I mean, you're in case in case your for, your boss, my former boss, are listening. Uh, <laughs> no, he knows my thoughts. I've told him. <laughs> so so uh, that's a good question. I th- I so I think I I really believe that like so I have a goal. Like people have goals. This is my goal. Right. If I were to make it to sixty five doing this. That's in, there's gotta be a hall of fame for that. That's, there, there must be because so fourteen. So that's fourteen years from now. Yeah. So that means I'll have been doing this thirty six years at that point. Wow. That's a career, right? Right. But I mean, I I I don't know, man. No, I don't have a um, I don't have like a pin to say that that's when it's gonna be. Yeah. I I do know that my goal. I don't. I'm not. I am a goal oriented person, but I don't state my goals. Right. It's, and my goals are more, I don't, I don't have like a goal to like be the, the best or the, right. the fastest or the whatever, but for work wise, it would be really cool if I could make it to retirement age in my mind, 65 yeah. and doing this and then maybe step away from it and then hating life and then probably coming back within <laughs> six months and doing it three days a week until I'm dead. If I'm right. living close to a metropolis where I can do it. Maybe you can just be a walking messenger at that point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know there's Jimmy, there's something about the bike, man. There's something about it, man. I've, I've really, I've, I've had really great bikes over yeah. my life and I've had great experiences uh, all over on my bicycle. And you know, it's maybe I could do this longer than 65. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's not like I'm. I'm just setting sixty five as like the hey. If I right. get there, if you get there, if I get there, there probably will be a at least a bike hall of fame moment with right. me and Rich Dillon, who works for Morin Van Allen. Um, anyhow, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't have physical problems. I think a lot of times, again, it goes back to how society interacts. Right. Uh, I don't. 
I, I, that was one of the things that somebody said to me a couple years ago, well, how long are you going to be able to do that? And, and it wasn't in a way like you're asking because right. you're intrigued and you right. want to connect the story right. forensically, but it was almost like sarcastically right. or condoning. Like, but it, right. at that point, that person is like making up for their own lack of not being able to do what they see me doing, sure. you know? And I think society does that. I think they condition you to come up with uh, reasons why you can't do something rather than why you can do something. So. Right. I don't know, man. Sixty-five, and then maybe get out for a couple of months, and then come back in part time. <laughs> maybe you'll just be a manager at that point. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll just be managing it. So, but I mean, I don't know if yeah. So yeah, do you um, do you have you ever had any significant injuries um, associated with that? Make you think, hey, or have you ever had to take a couple months off from like a broken or torn anything or a concussion nope. or nope. you know uh, getting hit by a car, sore by a car? What's what's the worst physical injury? What's the nearest life? death moment that you've had on your bike besides the daily grind right um like is there anything that there's a couple things that jump out first of all i think this is important and this could probably be like cut into the edit so i think the first thing is is if you were to ask the president of nova office strategies who is technically my manager and boss he will tell you that i have never in the entire since december of 2001 I've never called in sick at Nova, uh-huh. never. And I've never lost a minute in job based on an injury or being sick. So you always had a, pa- every package has always been delivered, never like, Correct. man, I got hit I by a that. car, I have to, Nope, that's you know, never happened. Josh is going to have to pick this up or, you know. Um. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 that's never happened. Okay. Um, I have a, there's an anti, there's an antidote, there's a, so... No, I've never lost. No, I've never, I've never lost time based on sickness or injury. I've had three. I believe I've had three interactions with cars in the last twenty one and a half years. Um, the scariest one is the one that I sent you. Yeah. Um, where I did that was an entire unibody replacement on that Impala, by the way. <laughs> like the whole entire rear end had yeah, to come I saw off. That. It was that like was a four thousand dollar job. It crimpled metal right. that wound up being a problem. Oh. Insurance took care of it. Whatever it was happened. The, was the passenger like, oh my god? Like... She she was when she came out of the car. The driver. Yeah. The driver was hysterical. <laughs> Relay on the pavement. I'm fine. I'm fine. She <laughs> thought no. She thought someone was dead. No. What she said? She felt my body through the steering wheel. Oh, you, wow. you saw the photograph. Yeah, that was real. She, she's and so when she gets out of the car, she's completely hysterical because she's feeling somebody's going to be on the floor dead. Right. On 10th Street and McDowell, right there. Did the she even see it? Yeah, but it was. But the whole thing was that wasn't of the three. This is where I'm going. Of the three accidents that I had with cars and I've never lost time at work based on those three incidences. The first two were the driver's fault. This one was mine. Hmm. The one that caused the damage to that Impala was mine. That's oh. why we had to pay for it. And what was your mistake that you made? So I'm coming down the hill on 10th Street on my bike, just like I do every morning. I'm trying to merge onto Mc- left onto McDowell underneath the um, 277 Beltway because my first stop is the U.S. Post Office on McDowell. And as I'm coming down 10th Street, it's two lanes. I'm in the left lane. In the right lane, I was distracted by a vehicle on my right. And I remember thinking to myself... McDowell lights green. I was going probably 25 miles an hour. It's a rush. I'm going towards a green light to turn left onto McDowell. And I sense this vehicle over here. And I basically want to look real quick to see if he's coming with me through the turn. Or is that vehicle turning right on 11th Street? I wanted to know whether or not I was going for no reason other than my own curiosity. It bit me in the butt. Because Mm -hmm. what happened was the three seconds I was distracted by that truck turning right on 11th Street, yeah. my light went red. Oh, Cars were yeah. coming hot off the expressway. She's turning left onto 10th off of McDowell. Wow. And I went, 
she was probably doing 25, 30 miles an hour and I was wow. over to, and that's that impact into the, wow. so I'm, it was completely my fault. Right. I it imagine was, you got thrown from the bike and on the ground. So I held on to the bike so that if you notice, like I'm trying so hard, I feel like I'm going to, I was that close to coming off the back of the car and never making contact with the car because mm -hmm. now I'm leaning as hard as I can to the right, turning the bike. Because she's coming across me like that, right? Right. She's coming off the expressway. She's turning left on 10th. I'm flying this way. So I wound up hitting that rear quarter panel. But I'm trying to lean to the right. Uh, the bike never hit the car. Mm. It was my body that hit the car. Wow. And then I slumped to the ground at the back right tire of the car on my forearms and knees while I walk. And I can't breathe. I'm like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and, I, and I watch my bicycle with nobody on it like rolling upright still and it hit the curb and then it fell over <laughs> so the bike was okay bike was fine <laughs> bike never touched the car yeah. you I think I might, the rest of the day i went i the police car had to come to the post office because i'm like i got to get to the post office <laughs> Mayor means it's mail mayor's but, mail means deliver <laughs> but there was a police report that had to be because i damaged some woman's property wow. because i ran a red light wow so i told the woman call the cops tell them i'll be at the post office i can't be late wow. and just have them meet me at the post office so the wow. girl's like crying i will thank you sorry <laughs> i'm so glad you're not dead so, i'm so glad you're not quite dead and um and then the, when the cops come they were familiar and they said bill the car you do you need medical attention? Right. The car damage? You are you sure you don't need? This is right. at like nine in the morning. I'm like, right. you guys, I have to continue the mission. Right. So I did, and that's a true story. None of that has been. Do, do you think made the up. military training came in to helping you be able to do that? Because it sounds like most people would be like, I'm good the rest of the day. I'm calling my backup. Uh, no, actually, I think that because at that point I would have been 46 or 45. I think the average 45 or 46 year old American would have wound up in the back of an ambulance and going to the emergency room and like maybe possibly been broken. Right. But I think what I did was I think I think because I'm so experienced in being out on it every day that right. when the actual moments happened, I saved myself somehow. Right. I, I did like I. Yeah, right. I, I don't know if it, the Marine Corps is probably part of it. I mean, you know, uh, Probably that that was probably a culmination of my entire life experiences, right. like and survival mode. I was primarily surviving right. at that point because, and there's a funny or not funny, but it's an important little story that is probably part of the podcast. I yeah. think out of this is that one of the interesting things that happened a few days after that accident. This is the worst accident I had, yeah. but I didn't miss any work. Wow. No, our insurance, Nova's insurance, took care of the car. Wow. Like Jason stepped in because I was, was I Jason was, wanted you to say, just take the day bill, you know. You should no, go. he didn't even really understand to like. Oh, he like, didn't understand the extent of. Into like okay. the day I'm going to him at five o'clock, saying this is what happened this morning. <laughs> oh, so this morning I was. And we'll get a police report right. tomorrow, and I'll give you the police report, and you Here's know. Here's a picture of the car. You know? And look what happened to the car because it was basically like right shoulder down. Wow. You saw my, you saw this bone, you saw that bone, wow. you saw this bone, and you saw that bone. Yeah. You saw it like it was imprinted into wow. the side of the car, kind of like a photograph, wow. but it was three dimensions. So one of the interesting things that came out of that little accident uh, that I didn't miss any work on is imagine this a couple days later. So that accident happened on a Tuesday morning in, in, and it was February or March. It was March, early March. It was cold. I was really, I had a lot of layers on that day. Um, a couple days later, my wife and daughter were out of town. So I was relegated to being home alone for the weekend which um, is always, you know, an experience. And I was, it was Saturday afternoon. It was cold and rainy. I had lit a fire in my hearth. I remember sitting in my chair. My dogs are laying all around. There's no TV on. There's no nothing else happening except for the fire. And I looked at the fire and I thought, wow, 
you know, I, I cut that wood last spring, like the year before, like this is it, you know, like this is like, I'm heating the fire. And all of a sudden I started having a chest pain. Mm. And I, cause I hit with this side of my body, right. the side your heart's on. Right. And so I closed my eyes, Jim. And it was almost like, it was almost like I could see my heart in a three dimensional MRI inside my chest cavity on the movie screen in my mind, in my mm. mind's eye. And I was looking at my heart. And then I realized, holy cow, what if when you hit that car, your body stopped, but your heart didn't, and you've torn your aorta just the <laughs> slightest bit, right. and it's going to explode in three seconds, and you're going to internally bleed to death in your own <laughs> living room, because you, nobody's going to know. And nobody's going to know. Your family's going to come right. home tomorrow and find you sitting in the chair, right. dead, you bled out like internally, right. because this really happened. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. What are my options? I guess I could call 911. And then I was like, no, then they're going to come out. The dogs are going to get upset. And then, then I'm going to be in the ambulance. And the, Or maybe I could drive to the hospital. They're going to want to admit me. And then I'm going to be hooked up to things. And I'm going to hear the beep, beep, and the code one, and all this like stuff right. that I don't need in my body right now. And I was like, oh, God, never mind. I'm just going to sit here. But I die. I die by my fire. I die by the fire that I've created. Right. And I've lived a good life. And my dogs are at my side. Right. And so anyway, that, yeah, but uh, I never died, obviously. Yeah, I, and you're still here. Yeah, So, still here. Uh, like, I guess the job, like, requires a lot of situational awareness. I mean, you're, you're always, you're on two wheels, a bike weighs, what, 5, 10 pounds? Uh, 15 my, my bicycle is a light, single-speed track bike, like mm -hmm. an urban track bike, and it weighs 15.9. Okay. So some bikes weigh as much as 20, 30, right. but not, my bike weighs 15.9. That's your standard huffy that you get at Wally World. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know... Um, 2,000 pound car. Yeah, 2,000 pound car, Truck. four wheels, aluminum, steel, concrete, buildings all around you. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you develop the situational? Like, it requires so much situational awareness. I couldn't even imagine. I'm such a klutz myself. Like, I can't walk down the street without bumping into somebody. Like, how do you have the situational awareness and frame of mind in order to navigate the, the ins and outs of weaving in and out of traffic with the cars, with people driving next to you that are oblivious to your existence, uh, while that. you're 100% aware of theirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think um, I, I think that that has been, um, I think that has to do with uh, experience, first of all. Um, I, and I think it's the, I, I think that when I'm on my bicycle, 99.9999999, and just keep going with the nines into infinity of the time, it, I, 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 I've been aware for a long time, probably the majority of this 21 years, that you have to be present. This is really fun. You, the bike is an efficient machine. My gear ratio, I can get to speed quick. I can, I can, cars might say, wow, what he's doing is so dangerous from the perspective of the car driver. But in actuality, I'm safer than you are right now because mm. I, know, I know what I'm doing. I'm flying this path. I'm flying this intuitive path. And I think that what's happened over the years and early on in realizing to be present, I think by being present and having it repetitive every day, right. Monday through Friday and sometimes Saturday, Sunday on recreation or vacation or right. whatever, bikes, um, I think what's happened is that, and this doesn't, this might sound far-fetched, but I think it's real, is that behind your visual cortex where the information's coming in is the hippocampus, which is up until recently, I think 98 or 99, was thought to have never grown physically in size past puberty. But they did some tests on some London cab drivers a couple years ago and took scans of their brains before and after, like figuring out the 5,800 streets on the Rolodex. And, and I think with that information coming in, that is my heart's beating, like blood is going to everywhere. Blood's 
it's going everywhere. I think what's happening is my hippocampus is actually growing mm. a little bit, maybe five or seven or eight percent more than the average human at fifty one years old, because every single day it's having to send messages to my entire body to right. keep me alive. Right. Right. So not everybody gets that. So they, right. they, how do you do that? Like I think I'm doing it because I do it. Right. Like I'm doing it, which is causing my brain to be able to because that's the other great thing about this job besides the heart pumping is i can think like i i really can situational awareness situational thinking like uh pivot to get over a situation something comes at you and all of a sudden it's different boom you got to get around it like it's it's on a 360 pivot i mean i don't know if that answers your question but i feel like i feel like my brain i think over the years it's just been a it's been feeding itself to be Out there in the traffic, you know, and not be a problem. I mean, because only three accidents in 21 years, that's really not that bad. <laughs> no, it's no, really, no. And, and that I'm still alive I, and I haven't lost I've any been, time I've been at in work. three accidents in a car in the last five or ten, you know. Uh, so. <laughs> right. So, so I, I think I'm pretty good there. And, uh, and again, I, I, I will make it out of this without having a stop loss of work because of an accident. No, right. st- no stop loss. Do, um, so uh, you're having to be very present, very in the now, very in the moment. Every day, do you ever feel like there's a day where it feels like you're on autopilot? Like, you know, for me at work, like th- there's some very routine tasks that I do every day mm-hmm. and I'm just sitting there, click, click, click. And I put my podcast on or music or whatever, you know, and I just like, okay, I, I can do this without even thinking. I, so I'm going to do it. And do you ever have that moments like that while you're doing your job? Interesting. I know exactly what you're talking about. And the last time I had it was when I worked for Sears and Roebuck prior to 1998. So you can't be sitting so there. So I gave that up. You can't be sitting there listening to Jimmy's Table podcast or YouTube. Or, oh, yeah. Oh, are you? Are, yeah. So oh, you okay. mean for while at work? Yeah. While you're, oh, while not, you're pedaling around. While I'm pedaling around. I have this little system where I have this little wire and I go into my bag and I can listen to... You know, I like Pearl Jam a lot I, when I'm riding. I like Eddie Vedder's, like oh, okay. the anger that comes out. I like that. I sometimes listen to Metallica. And I do, I've, I do listen to podcasts. Yeah. I listen to the one with Megan. Yeah. And I've listened to a couple of yours. And I do listen to other podcasts sometimes. Um, so you don't feel that distracts you from no. the, the noise and the, the well, heavy aware of traffic and honking horns? and Most of the time I ride with one ear. But if I do put okay. in two ears because I really like the song, right. like uh, <laughs> Daughter by Pearl Jam, yeah. um, uh, what I think is happening, Jimmy, I think even though I'm taking the hearing sense away, I think that's hiding sight, smell, taste, and right. general awareness. Right. I think by blocking this out, mm-hmm. it's actually like, you know, when you plug your hand over an AC vent or right. whatever, or the water in the pool, and you, it gives more pressure. I really feel like it, and I don't do it every day, and right. I don't do it the whole day, right. but sometimes I get in the mood to hear a little something happy that I like okay. that gets me in a good mood. But that doesn't necessarily mean that my job is, you know, redundant or boring. Right. And I, it's like one of those, te- no, I don't, I've never had that. I know the feeling you're talking about, right. but I don't, I don't have it at this type okay. of job. And, and none of that sound distracts you at all from Mm-mm. situational awareness of anything? Mm-mm. Wow. Mm-mm. It's amazing. Like I was sitting there like, man, I would be listening to every sound around me and <laughs> well, those get well. Sometimes, well, the other. The, I mean, I'm the, sure there are times you have to be but totally the, glued in. Oh, but, sure, sure, yeah. exactly, right, exactly. It's not all the time, and the conditions right. have to be right, and I have to be in the mood. Right. But oh, another interesting thing that you just made me realize is maybe that those times that I am blocking sound out, I'm blocking terrible sounds out, like right. car tires ripping right. on the ground right by sure. you. You know, and now I don't have to hear it. Right. I mean, I feel the car, I smell the car. Right. I've, 
like I can taste the car sometimes. Uh, like I'm sure it's like I mean, yeah. I, I can remember walking around town, going walking to the courthouse, and like feeling like I could taste the cars around me, or or just the deafening sound of especially when you're walking in Auburn town and you have all the buildings surrounding you, like the fire truck goes roaring down. It's like the most deafening. It's like ten times louder than a fire truck normally is. Right, um, and it's just like unreal. Um, so if let's say career day, kid wants to say like they've listened to this podcast and like I want to be you know, a bike messenger when I grow up, what does that kid have to have to take? Because I know just from the couple of years I worked with you that there are some folks who didn't even last six months yeah. in the profession. And like, how did they get into it? Why didn't they last? And what does it take to, to be you so you can say, I'm going to do this for 30, 40, 50 years? Well, I mean, I think it's it's sometimes hard to have that hypothetical scenario and, and give an, an opine on it. However, I think that um, um, you have to have a heart I think I think if you're gonna do that, here we go. This is it. I uh, if you're gonna if you really like on career day, if you're thinking, if you're the kid that's thinking, I want to be a cop, a lawyer, a fireman, a doctor, or whatever, I, and the kid that's like over there picking his nose and he says, I want to be a bike messenger. Um, I say you. I say you have to be able to. You have to ride your bike. You have to adjust to the actual climate for four seasons and all that. But I think it could be condensed to three simple things. I think that if you wanted to be successful at this job and you have to hang it out, you have to be tough. You got to be tough. <laughs> you got to be a little tougher than normal. But once you are, you find that you're actually tough and you can still even be more tough. I might have still have a, a way to go, you right. know. But I think, I, you know this guy, I know you know this guy, Jimmy, Lou Holtz. The former coach of the Notre Dame, he was national. Uh, I might be way before. Yeah, he's ninety something. He's ninety something now. There was an amazing coach from Indiana. His name is Lou Holtz. Maybe if you have a minute at some point, look this guy up. Mm -hmm. All right, he coached South Carolina and then he coached Notre Dame for like eight years and won a national championship. He talks, man. He got interviewed recently by Joe Buck, and he's in his nineties. And I think if you're gonna do this job this if you're the kid that wants to be a bike messenger you're going to want to make it 35 years all you have to do is th stick to three simple rules do the right thing do the best you can with the time you have to do it and show people you care about what you're doing yeah. if you stick to those three rules just like Lou Holt says then you will be successful no matter what you choose on career day to be right. it applies to everything engagements in life people friends right. family right. work right. Uh, hobbies right do the right thing, show people you care, and uh, do the best you can with the time you have. That's what I would tell them. Do you think that's maybe the people, because I know I saw people quit after six months doing it, people even working with Nova, like, were the, like, they're just you, weak. They're just weak, and then they just decide, like, what made them decide they could do it, and then decide not to do it? Yeah, like, exactly. Well, a reality check, okay. I guess. You know, some people think it's a glamorous position. Yeah. Some people, th like, some people... So they kind of like where you, where you missing, saw that bike passenger driving by, like, man, I want to do what that guy's doing. And yeah. then they get in there and be like, you know, maybe not so much. Right, and me, it was like as soon as I got in it, I never thought about not doing yeah. it. Do you think any of them had maybe family pressures to perhaps maybe not do that? Like, do you know anybody who's like, didn't have any support mm -hmm. from their family and said, you got to stop it as soon as you can? Or No, I think with anything, it was just like disenfranchised that you actually have to bust your ass while yeah. you're on it. Because right. we, get, we, we get paid very well. We're in, yeah. we're in the modern era. You right. know, we, there's no competition with our business. We've right. had our clients for over two decades. We, we have seven clients we've had for over two decades. Yeah. We're building 50 law firms a month now. So we're getting paid worth what we're doing. There's mutual respect. Right. And, and that was one of the things that I tried to 
create for our business model is it wasn't just a hack career company making money off of kids getting paid nothing. <laughs> I wanted this to be legitimate, bona fide, to where not only was the courier being treated fairly, but the firm was being treated right. fairly, and that the firm recognized this. That these guys, we're all W two. Yeah, I pay forty four fifty every two weeks for medical insurance. Have right. since two thousand one. Okay, we have four hundred one k if we want it. Okay, like we've got benefits. You know what okay. I mean? Like, so we're bona fide, and so I think that was one of the constructs. And I think, and people, and so people want to do that, but then you got to get in. You got to do the work. Right. And I don't think everybody that thinks that they want to be a messenger really understands. It's not like you just sit around all day and make money. Right. So is the pay, because I never knew, and you don't, you can only, you, I know the uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. contract situational stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but generally speaking, and you can speak to it yeah, freely yeah. as much as you want to yours, but like, is it contract based? Is it like per ride? Is it yeah. per mile? Is it, here's your flat salary plus bonus? Or no, no. How, it's straight, how does all that work? It's straight commission. Okay. Uh, it's straight commission. We have a billing scale. We bill... Uh, we bill the client basically um, 16 18 20 and $22 for standard runs. Okay. For those of the like going one place within an hour and a half, going one place within 20 minutes, going one place and back within two hours, going one place and back within an hour. Yeah. We have the a la carte menu for the choices. So we bill that. Um, <clears throat> and we're strictly on a commission basis. Okay. Um, um, we're, yeah, we're strictly on a commission basis. Plus the perks of insurance and all that stuff. Plus the perks right. of insurance, which our commissions help pay for. Right, right. Right. Um, exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Plus the perks of right. the benefits. I mean, okay. you can't get away from that in this modern era. So, yeah, we don't get paid by the mile. The only way that that changes, that billing scenario changes, is all, all of the, the um, for example, the, the, if you're going to the courthouse and you're trying to copy a file, if we finish that job within 15 minutes... We bill the twenty bucks for the round trip, right? Mm -hmm. But if we go past fifteen minutes, we bill fifteen dollars every fifteen minutes in fifteen minute increments. Okay. So it's sixty dollars an hour billing. Okay. At that point, that's okay. how the schematic is set up. Okay, nice. And there's no, I'm not worried about you publishing. No, that no, because yeah, that's public information. Right. Okay. I mean, that's how we do our right. business. Like, right. if, if a new firm would call me tomorrow, they right. say send over your rates, I'd tell them the right. same thing. I just don't okay. do. Uh, so most important thing you've ever delivered, most valuable thing you've ever delivered. All right. And uh, were they the same? It will have to be for this because I guess the most important, the most valuable would have to be simultaneous on this. So, so this is a, this is a true story. This is, um, nothing like this has ever happened before and nothing has happened since. So this was probably 2005. I had been in it for six years. Um, and I'm riding around doing my job uptown. It was a beautiful sunny day in the late spring. My phone, the work phone rings with a number I don't recognize. And so I answer it, Nova Courier, this is Bill. And it's a client of mine that normally calls me from her office line. And she was calling me on her personal cell. Hmm. And she was hysterical. She was crying. She was sobbing. She couldn't even really talk. Wow. She was trying to tell me something. And she was in such an emotional place that it wasn't coming out as words. To the point where I'm, when I reali finally realized who it was. And we're just going to call her the Angel of Munich. I want to leave her name out of it. Um, I haven't seen her in a bit. Okay, so the Angel of Munich calls me. She's hysterical. She's asking me through the tears and the sobs, can I please come to her office right away? And when I get there to be as nonchalant as possible, walk down the hall and go, her office will be shut and to open the door and come in and shut the door immediately. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I race there within like five minutes 
I get up to the floor, I go down the hall, I open the door, and when I open the door, I see my client, an attorney, um, in the middle of her office, and she's crouched down on the floor, like in a squat, and her like skirt's pulled up at her knees, and she's trembling, and she's staring at this box, and it's like this tall, it's like, you know, three feet tall, maybe a foot and a half, two feet wide, square, and she's touching it, and she looks over me through tears, and she's like, the assholes at FedEx were supposed to bring this to the hospital. They brought it here. I don't want no one knowing about this. I'm in so much pain right now. Like, I'm like, what is going on? And it turns out that she was having a baby. Uh-huh. And she didn't want anybody to know her business. And the FedEx people delivered the sperm sample coming from California to her office. Holy when, it, cow. when it should have been at the research endocrinology unit of CMC Maine down there at Moorhead and Queens, wow. that red building. Yeah. And she's looking at me and she's, I'm getting cold chills recounting the story. I'm with the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because she was so beautiful in her sadness and her, um, how vulnerable she was actually was because it was such a personal choice, right. which I respect right. people's individual personal sure, choices. Absolutely. And she's, she's like, I didn't want anyone to know this is my story. This isn't. And I'm like, okay, what do you need me to do? And she's like, I need you to get this out of here. I need, if anybody asks you questions, not to say anything, I need you to get out of the building as fast as possible. And I need you to take this down to the research endocrinology unit. She gave me the address, third floor, get off the elevator, find Linda. As soon as you find Linda, she's going to take the box. You go with her into this room. You're going to sit in a chair. She's going to open the box and tell you that everything's okay. And then you're going to call me and tell me everything's fine. Wow. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I do this and I'm carrying what is like, you know, it's like, we'll call it life for all intents and purposes. This is about to be, you know, somehow they're going to do their science and they're going to put it inside her and there's going to be a baby. And I go downstairs and I put this box on my handlebars and I do, (laughs) I do plug in music. I do plug in music. That's a music ride. (laughs) It's a music ride. And I, I don't, it was an iPod. It was one of those shuffles or something. It was one of these little Um, round eye things. And um, the first song that came up was a Sarah McLaughlin song. (laughs) So I like rode away down the street and I went to the research endocrinology unit of CMC Maine. Uh, and I went upstairs and Linda was waiting for me and she, she takes the big box from me and she says, follow me. And she whisks us away and we go into this room. She sets the box on a table. And now imagine the layers of, um, of protection down to this thing that looked like a tiny inside the box was this tiny keg of beer looking thing. And then she came out of the room and she said, everything was fine. And then like a year later I met. I met the baby. Wow. I met Lily. I met, cool. I met Lily. And then like, I, I was getting ready to ask and then it, five, it and then five years later, and then five years after that, when Lily was like <laughs> six and I'm using a pseudonym, that's not really her right, name. Sure. I'm using a, a you know, a pseudonym. Right. And yeah. I, I was on my way home and I was cutting through Plaza Midwood and I don't remember what exactly had me on Belvedere, but I turned right on Belvedere and I'm going down the hill and I make my right. And all of a sudden I passed a, uh, the angel of Munich's house and her and Lily were in the driveway playing with chalk. Uh-huh. And I pulled over and I just sat there and I played chalk with the baby that was uh-huh. like originated from a mistake by FedEx, uh-huh. which turned into me transferring, getting my hand on it without uh-huh. even asking to be part of it. Uh-huh. But somehow I'm part of that. And that might uh-huh. be her. Like, sh- she knows that story uh-huh. because her mom told her. Wow. You need to see if maybe one day uh, you That's can't, the- can't put this kid, go give this kid a bike ride. 
uh, yeah. as an adult or take a, a picture, know, make right, their portrait. Right. Like that, that would be awesome. Assuming they want to share that, but that would be amazing. That's, yeah. To that, do a little short documentary on right, that, a little short film, two right, minute film, right, that like would, make it really nice, push through slow-mo and right, all that. that. Tell a story, write a beautiful narrative right. about how can how trust. Right. Cause at that point, she was completely trusting me. Sure. You know, like she didn't know. Think about that. The, the, right. the attorney didn't know who to trust right. other than the bike messenger. Right. It's like our job, like this career, this trade, if you will, this trade craft goes back like, you know, to the time of the Greek gods. Like right. there, there's trust in a messenger. You're getting the message and you've got to get it to that point right. at all point. And then, you know, thankfully they invented the bike in the <laughs> mid 19th century, which made it we didn't have right. to do it on our feet all the time. Right. But her trust level of me that day was... I mean, it was quite telling, really, wow. and how, and then, you know, of course, I think she took me out for a steak dinner a couple wow. weeks later nice. to thank me, because right, there's, sure. no, there's no way to, <laughs> right. you know, what do you do to, wow. right. to thank somebody other yeah. than like, make, have a meal, wow. so, yeah, it was, that was, I think that was unequivocally the most important thing, valuable thing that ever came my way. That is awesome. Wow. Yeah. How long ago did that happen? Happened two thousand five. Wow. I bred in it for like six years. Wow. Yeah. I, and I, she has since moved away. Oh, okay. She's since moved away. Nice. You stay in touch? Uh, I haven't talked to her in a bit. Okay. Having that experience, then, do you feel like? I mean, that's a very real experience. I mean, that's as very real as anything anybody has for for job. Do you feel like there's some innate? And I don't know your views of the world on things. I know we probably differ on some things, like theologically or whatever, but. Do you feel like there's like some sort of inherent spiritual sense of spirituality that you bring to your work or that the work brings to you? Like, do you look at it or is it just... No, know? that's that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Without that component, without that component, without the spiritual component, the awareness of a spiritual body. I, like, I'm this person that thinks we have several bodies. We have a physical body. We have a spiritual body. We have an emotional body, a creative body, like I was talking about earlier. And I no, I think... Um, yeah, no, I, I think recognizing that, like being in that moment in time where there was such a devastating, like sh it was so devastating that her choice was now brought into the workplace, right? And and so to me to be part of that was nothing but a, but a gift of like, right. of that internal God. I think we all have it in us, you know? Like we recognize like my, the, the individual God within me recognized the individual God within you. Mm -hmm. And it was obvious that day that she recognized an individual God in with me where there was so much trust in right. fixing this problem that right. she couldn't just break away from and make a scene by storming out the office with the big box, right. you know? And um, so, yeah, I do think that spirituality is a component yeah. to this job. I think it's, I think it gives and, 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 and I think it gives that and then you actually right. experience it as well. Yeah, you couldn't do that if it was just a moment like that. If it's just a contractual obligation, you might end up like FedEx. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, totally screwing up the delivery and embarrassing this woman. And and you know, if, when you look at just purely as business, purely mm -hmm. as a contract, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe they make that delivery ninety nine percent of the time, but uh, you know, there's a very real thing about that. That's that's awesome. So, if there's anything that you could tell anybody about your job and what we've talked about today that we haven't already talked about, what would you want them to take away about what you do, why you do it, and what that should mean to them when it comes to success, pursuing their dreams, career aspirations, and, you know, the general. Right. No, um, I mean, I don't know if I'm any different than most people. The career is a little bit, the career is a little bit different than most careers. Um, you know, obviously as a bike messenger, it's kind of like a, a small pool your, of your of a perspective. Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that I have an answer for somebody. I, I think maybe 
if I were to answer that question, it would be whatever you're doing, if you don't like doing it. See, here's the thing. Sometimes people say to me, well, how'd you wind up like this? This is so great. You're set, you know, your family, you've got a good family. You're not, you know, you've obviously provided for everybody. And you got a kid in college. got a kid in college, going on vacations, like whatever. You have fantastic photography gear. Love it. (laughs) Love my gear. I can't, I cannot tell you how much I love this equipment. Um, and yeah, and I, I think that maybe the answer or the, the question you're trying to find the answer for is it's what it really, what you're, it's like someone will say to me, well, how'd you wind up like this? And, and all I can think was, you know what? I had a moment on a lake in 1998 in February up near Canada, and I was enveloped by the cosmos, and it made me realize that what I was doing for this corporation wasn't, it was insignificant for me. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, for somebody else, it might be training horses. For somebody else, it might be a fi- becoming a firefighter like right. your brother. But if you don't like what you're doing, don't worry about having something to stop what you're doing. I think that mm. might be what you're... I think there's a really cosmic, if you will, um, thing that you're picking up on as far as like my life experience thus far, right. a little bit further than yours, a little bit different, right. whatever, is that... I didn't pick out being a bike messenger when I quit the job I hated. Right. That I was wicked successful right. at. I didn't have that. The only way I got to that to where I'm at now is by completely cutting that without knowing what it was going to be right. and then just falling into place. It's kind of a leap of faith. Kind of a leap of faith, yeah. exactly. It's like I guess, yeah, like they I you know, faith. I mean, that's a that's a really interesting word because right. it can be Somebody can assume. It has a lot of baggage with it. <laughs> well, and I think some people think that faith bequeaths nothing, yeah. while other people think faith is the um, the push the world needs to get to a better place. Yeah. You know, so uh, faith and hope, I guess, right. is like the the thing. And so that is what I think that I could answer. The only answer I have for you is that if somebody is, no matter what you want to, no matter where you find yourself. We all, we basically all have to work on some level. We're all working, right? Right. You know, work the release of energy, uh, earning some money so we can have a home and shelter and food and right. clothing and, you know, take care of our families. I think what I could say is that you just have to cut it. You right. don't, you might not know right. what that thing is going to be to your success, but 22 years later, I'm, I'm better than I've ever been. You know what I mean? Right. And I didn't know that. I didn't double click that. I didn't have that job set up for me months right. in advance. I just said, oh, crap, I can't do this because the Milky Way, look, the Milky Way right. is hugging me. Right. And I'm going to listen to what this is telling me, which is my intuitive body. And I suggest people listen to their intuitive bodies maybe a little right. bit more. That's another body we have. We have an intuition, Jim. Right. You know, and I think a lot of times, I think my intuition, I think that's another thing that's been really honed for me over the years is my intuitive body. Right. Based on the... the um, uh, based on the reciprocation of honesty in the world, right. um, is coming back to me at this point. At 51, you get amazed. The older you get, right. it's not bad, man. Right. It comes your way. And I think I think people over the years, society in general, um, you know, starting like 2,000 years ago, and, and this is not judgmental, this is not anything but the way that I see it. I right. think science came in 2,000 years ago and religion came in 2,000 years yeah. ago. And university came in 2,000 years ago because of that. And I think what happened is like people would say, oh, I'm hearing this voice. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the science and the clinical and the religion would say, oh, then you're crazy. Don't listen to your voices. <laughs> when right. in actuality, up until that point, 
25, 35,000 years prior, the inner voice is what was keeping you alive. Right. It was telling you what plants to eat, what plants not to eat, what path to walk down, right. you know, to get you to the next space. And I think that that, I think that that's part of the answer that I could give yeah. you as well is to trust your intuition. Right. When you hear that little voice, trust it. Because right. it's always, it's trying to keep you alive. Right. I mean, legitimately. Right. Yeah, I can definitely relate because like, I mean, you know, when I was working with Nova, I just up and pretty much quit one day on one day's notice. But I was, I was, uh, which I, I guess isn't really a notice of the end of the day, but like, I had no idea what I was getting into. I just felt I was at a point in my life where like something's got to change. Like this, this just isn't the fit for me. This is not what I need to be doing. And I wasn't sure what I needed to be doing, but I just like, you know, I've put in my time here, but I, I know I can't do this anymore. Um, and then I just got a call from a temp agency was like, Hey, this bank, like you want to come do this? I was like, loan adjustment now I have no idea what that a loan adjuster is like I've never even heard of such a thing like um and I was like well what kind of job is it and so I interviewed for it talked about it but I still didn't even know if I wanted to do it and I just felt like I needed to jump and and I was like I had no idea what I was getting into when I was sitting there I remember sitting there on training day the first day of class like Oh my God, what did I get in? <laughs> like, I, I didn't oh, train no. for this. Like, right. I, I went to seminary. Like, what am I doing here in a bank, you know, learning about mortgage stuff? Like, what is this? But I just felt like I needed to make that jump personally. Um, and I just felt like I, I just can't do this anymore. And, and I was really making a leap of faith, a leap into the dark and not knowing where I was going to land. And like the, the recruiter, the, the temp agency was like, well, I was like, well, how long is the job for? Like, because at least I got a secure job here and it's, you know, helping me somewhat pay my bills. And I was just like, well, they're like, it could be 90 days. It could be a year. Uh, I'm like, well, that's not a lot of, you know, promise um, for, you know, any sort of <laughs> anything. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I did. And my life's never been the same since. All right, everybody. Well, that was today's show. I've kind of had to abruptly pull the plug on this. Bill and I went for so much longer, um, and I've just decided, you know, I need to give you something that you all can digest and listen to in one setting. Um, hope you've enjoyed today's show. I'd really like to just take a moment and thank Bill uh, for coming on this show today at jimmystable.com and talking about his adventures as a bike courier and uh, the unconventional path that he has taken in his journey to success may not look like the typical journey to success in America, uh, but I think it's been a fascinating one from which we have much to learn and draw from. I uh, hope you've been blessed by this. I've personally enjoyed it. Um, and I look forward to continuing to have conversations like this at jimmystable.com where I'm having conversations about faith, life, culture, and sometimes food. If you've enjoyed the show, be sure to like it, uh, subscribe, uh, reach out to me, jimmy at jimmystable.com, or if you'd like to email Bill, where on earth is Bill at gmail.com? Uh, Take care, everybody. God bless. And I uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Air smudge. Hi, I'm Bridge of What. Cancel culture is a cultural phenomenon where there's a social effervescence where people get so angry at somebody, they want them to lose their platform. Jimmy Humphrey came on the Wax Museum to discuss this phenomenon with me. At the same time, he was experiencing something similar to that phenomenon on Twitter, 
after he suggested that Christian authors give away their content for free. Listen to episode 61 on cancel culture and episode 62 on Jimmy's tweet on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or at thewaxmuseum.org.